Today's episode is presented by Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. Novavax is also collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations, and industry to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Learn more at www.novavax.com. Welcome to Power Play, Politico's transatlantic podcast, where I talk to some of the most influential figures on either side of the Atlantic in the eye of global storms. My guest this week is in charge of Europe's leading digital publisher, Axel Springer. And Matthias Derfen has been at the helm for the last 21 years at a media megalith whose titles include Die Welt and Built in Germany, Insider in the US, and of course Politico, fully acquired two years ago. As one of the world's major media CEOs, he describes himself like this. I still consider myself a journalist. At yeah. the moment, I'm working as a CEO, but that doesn't change my profession. And that explains why he tends to wade into big, even contentious debates. I've known Matthias since we were both in Berlin in the brave new world after the fall of the wall, a time of changed international relations and many hopes that seem to have soured or been tested by new conflicts. Now he's written a new book called The Trade Trap about the economic relationship between Western democracy and the rise of powerful autocracies, a challenge to much of the free trade liberal consensus that dominated after the Cold War. We have a war of systems and it is truly a battle between democracies and autocracies. And we should be realistic about it. That is the underlying factor in the Russian aggression against Ukraine. That is the underlying factor in all the terrorist actions in the Middle East against Israel. And that will be also the underlying factor in potential actions of China with regard to Taiwan. But why does he think now is the time to stop, as he puts it, doing business with dictators? Later, I'll be joined by my expert power panel from inside and outside Politico to give us their view. But first, my conversation with Matthias Döpfner. You've met some of the world's most powerful leaders along the way in, in both of these incarnations. They include Vladimir Putin, Angela Merkel, every recent US president, I think. Except Donald Trump. Uh, except Donald Trump. Did you try to meet Donald Trump? No. Not interested? No, it would be super interesting, but just... Uh didn't work out. Let's put it that way. I mean, I never tried and uh, perhaps there may be a situation that there is a second chance. We might come on to that. But I wanted to start with your encounter with Vladimir Putin. Tell me what you saw in him when you met, and I think it was in 2005. Yeah, it was in 2005 uh, under very unfortunate circumstances. It was shortly after the editor of Forbes Russia, which we published as a license, got shot uh, and killed in front of the newsroom. And as a consequence of that, I got an invitation from Putin to the Kremlin and we had a conversation here. You might read us a little bit from your book about that because to me it sets up this sense of the period when, from the 1990s and 2000s, when there's a, a lot of hope for Russia. I was a Moscow correspondent there. I know exactly what you're talking about, the sort of desire that we, these two worlds would come together again after the Cold War. Well, I can read that little paragraph. And there it was, flashing away, quite unmistakably, 
the wounded pride of the head of a former superpower, which now found itself downgraded to middling status. He was consumed with an ambition to change precisely this status, an ambition that would take an increasingly radicalized form over the next few years, but even then, in that earlier phase, which looks relatively benign from today's perspective, it still felt unsettling and dangerous. What did you make of him as a person? I had to bring an interpreter. He spoke the whole time German, so the interpreter didn't say a word. Uh, so in a way, you could say there is a symbol for very much status-oriented uh, setup. Um, it is about uh, impressing visitors, if not more than that, um, in a way, pressure visitors to a certain degree. At the same time, he spoke with a very low voice, uh, almost a bit like the, the, the cliche of Italian movies of the mafia. So um, it was a weird experience. And why do you think Western leaders, Angela Merkel, Tony Blair, if we go back to that time, gave Putin the benefit of the doubt to an extent? Do you think they were preoccupied with business, trade, energy links with Russia? That's one analysis. Or do you think that they, you know, there was also a kind of optimism there that was just misplaced? Well, it can be both. There, there was certainly a degree of optimism that Russia would change. And that was still the time also when this old idea of change through trade was a phrase that was constantly used. And maybe it was partly motivated by opportunism, but it could also be motivated by the simple belief that dealing with more autocratic countries will open them up, will lead to more democracy, will lead to more freedom. And that was the case in dealing with Russia. That was the case in dealing with China. That was the case in dealing with Islamist countries, non-democracies all around the world. And it never worked and hasn't worked anywhere. And Russia is a particularly sad case. Look to uh, the relationship between Russia and Germany. Germans consumption of Russian gas was when Angela Merkel took office around 33%. When we look to the numbers today, we are north of 65%. So within 15 years, it has increased and has developed into total dependency. And this dependency on Russian energy has created Putin's leverage, has financed the Putin that we have now to deal with in this terrible war in Ukraine. And I think it is a particularly painful lesson that business is never apolitical, that business has always a political impact. And in that case, it concretely shaped the Putin that is now so aggressively trying to undermine and damage democracy. What do you think Angela Merkel would make of that analysis now? I mean, she might say, look, what was the alternative? I was trying to get a rapprochement with Russia. I couldn't foresee how badly it would go with Putin. You know, I wanted the G8 to bring the big global powers together, you, know, you could say it wasn't that crazy a strategy. Well, that's probably pretty precisely what she would say. And the only thing is when Nord Stream 2 was pushed through against really good and realistic advice from the United States, I think that was an irritating moment because it is also then a question of priorities. Is it really about strengthening the transatlantic alliance and with that defend our values and security and business interests? Or is it more about establishing a new axis, an alternative axis to the transatlantic alliance? And I think at that point, one should have been a bit more realistic. And that's why I think, and that is one of the elements that also motivated me to write that book, that we have to deal with that issue in a slightly 
slightly more um, principled manner. And we'll come to what your prescriptions are in a moment. Many things happened, obviously, because Angela Merkel was there for so long. I'm always struck when I discuss Merkel, where I have, as they say in German, you know, two souls in my breast, two on this issue. Huge admiration for her in large parts of the world, along with, as you point out, many more doubts and a dismay about Germany's role in the run-up to what has happened in Ukraine, but more broadly to that energy dependency, etc. What do you make of her legacy overall? History will tell, but I think uh, despite her achievements, which are unquestionable, there will be two things that will definitely be part of a negative legacy, and that is the dropout of nuclear energy after Fukushima, which I think was completely unnecessary, not based on facts, but only on emotions or tactical considerations for future coalition constellations with the Greens. So to take out that uh, greener position against nuclear energy by simply stepping out of nuclear energy and with that create a big value destruction in the German economy, but more importantly, lay the fundament for that dependency that we have just discussed. I think that is clearly one of the fundamental and uh, historic mistakes. And the other one is the management of the migration crisis, which has undermined German society, created a lot of unrest, security risks, uh, parallel societies, and re-established anti-Semitism on German streets, and has created indirectly the AfD, or at least the role that this very right-wing populist party these days plays in Germany. And that is a legacy which has a lot of consequences that we can see particularly these days in the context of the terrible war and terrorism in Israel. I mean, I'm going to put in a word, I think, of defence for Angela Merkel in 2015-16, and that, as you say, was a huge amount of people who were let into the country. She was, I think, trying to do something that, in a sense, the problem was not only Angela Merkel, it was a, a European problem. I mean, are you saying she did too much or she shouldn't have done anything at all? The first gesture of helping refugees that are victims of genocidal developments is absolutely appropriate. And I think there is zero alternative. Germany couldn't have said, sorry, our doors are closed, uh, go elsewhere. So the initial intuition and gesture and action was absolutely appropriate. But then the lack of a concept of integration, the lack of criteria and also a lack of a kind of legal concept for that led to a situation where a total overflow of refugees for very different motives. Uh, so many refugees came to Germany for simple economic reasons. They wanted to benefit from a social welfare system or better uh, growth opportunities and uh, economic circumstances in Germany. Didn't the country also need them? Demographically, exactly, the country needed then, workers. Exactly. But then you should define the criteria whom you need, and then it should be a migration based on skills and excellence. I think there are two criteria. Those you have to and want to take because they are really in trouble and in existential threats. And the other criteria is those refugees that you want and that you want to attract actively because you need their skills and you need their contributions to your to the well-being of your country. Everything that is in between is problematic and is just leading to the opposite. It is not leading to an open-minded, tolerant uh, culture. It is leading to xenophobia, if not racism, and to unrest and a situation that we face these days, that there are too many people that are in sharp opposition to fundamental values of Germany and the German constitution 
that may have been educated in schools that the right of existence doesn't exist, that Israel should be extinct, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, Jews are bad for the world, so pure anti-Semitism, and that we, particularly in Germany, on the streets of Berlin, see these days again that the Star of David is painted uh, on uh, windows of shops or that uh, Israeli flags are burned on the streets and terrible anti-Semitic sentences are shouted. I think that's a disgrace. And it is not all to be blamed on Angela Merkel that would go too far, but it was a conceptual mistake to do it without a real concept. I think we should absolutely touch uh, on the Israel crisis. You're a very strong supporter of Israel and also a very strong personal connection to uh, Israel. We're obviously watching, I think, a tragedy has unfolded there already uh, in the Hamas attack and the aftermath. Do you think it will also affect the debate that, debate's probably too mild a word for it, the mood that you touch on in Germany and in the Western democracies? Do we yet know the impact or can we guess the impact of this crisis on all of us? Of course, uh, nobody knows exactly the impact and uh, how things are going to develop. But one thing seems to be very obvious already now. We have a war of systems and it is truly a battle between democracies and autocracies. And we should be realistic about it. That is the underlying factor in the Russian aggression against Ukraine. That is the underlying factor in all the terrorist actions in the Middle East against Israel. And that will be also the underlying factor in potential actions of China with regard to Taiwan. This is all related. And it is about the system. And I think it is really a historic moment where the West has to define whether we really unite, whether we re-establish the transatlantic alliance, uh, bring it to a new quality, not only security-wise, but also with regard to business interests and trade. That's where my book is all about. And we really have to see the big picture. If we continue to deal, let's say, short-sightedly with these threats, I think we face a fundamental crisis, if not decline, if not the end of democracy. As you mentioned, and it never takes people long on this show to tell us that they've written a book, but you have written a book. It's a, a warning call, first on the threat posed by Russia, but China and Taiwan plays a big part in your analysis. When I first picked it up, I was in a sense surprised because I thought, well, you might take a bit more of the old free trade liberal worldview that trading even with your enemies brings you together, you understand them better. I think you now take a very different view and I'm interested what took you there. I'm a big advocate of free trade and Adam Smith is and remains my uh, hero in that context. But I think a concept for free trade cannot be based on old mistakes. And we have to learn. We have to learn from developments over the last decades. And if we are realistic, we have to acknowledge that the idea of change through trade didn't work out or it worked in a very different sense because it weakened the liberal, democratic and open societies economically and politically. And it strengthened the autocratic systems with which we did trade. And it made them even more autocratic, if not dictatorial. So it definitely was not a successful model. Now, What is the alternative? I think we have to come up with a model that reestablishes truly free trade. And I think we cannot 
be naive about the asymmetry of the trade that we are currently doing with non-democratic countries. Let's take the example of China. When China became a full member uh, of the WTO in December 2001, China's contribution to the global GDP was 3.8%. It is today north of 18%. The contribution of the United States used to be 32%. It is today 24%. And also, if we take the absolute numbers, China is now the second biggest economy in the world, still treated in the WTO as a developing country, which is a joke. It comes with a lot of privileges. It comes with a lot of exceptions. And that leads to this asymmetry, which is just self-damaging. It's self-damaging economically. It is self-damaging politically. And we see now the first concrete examples, what it can also do to world stability, security order, and the future of democracy. So I think we need to rethink. And my proposal is let's reestablish truly free trade, tariff-free trade among democracies who uh, comply with certain criteria, which is basically rule of law, human rights, and CO2 targets. And those who comply to these minimalistic standards can do tariff-free trade. There will be a huge stimulus. They can still do trade with autocratic or dictatorial systems, but then these countries have to pay tariffs. And I think that would strengthen democracies. It is like a good tax reform. It may have some short-term costs, but the midterm and long-term benefits are much, much bigger. And here it is not only about money and business. It is truly about our system. And that free trade alliance of democracies has membership criteria, rule of law, human rights, emissions target would then, as you say, get you kind of tariff-free trading. Uh, but there are democracies that don't necessarily subscribe to all of those criteria. I think on the carbon emission targets, both Germany and the UK, where you're talking to me from today, you know, their targets are somewhat elastic. Measurability an issue here? Well, first of all, if it is about rule of law and um, human rights, if you refer to criteria that independent institutions have defined, 70% of the world GDP is still in the hands of democracies who comply to these criteria. If it is about CO2 emissions, that is, of course, a future project. And here my point is, if we are discussing to reduce air traffic in order to be role models in CO2 emissions in our markets, we are talking about 2% of the global CO2 emission. China contributes to the global CO2 emission 32% last year. So it shows how absurd any climate policy is if China is not included. And that's why we have to increase the leverage and the negotiation power. And that can only be done by a new alliance of democracies. That's why CO2 comes in. But that has to be defined, of course. It can be uh, based on the ideas of the Climate Club. That is an example. But that should be done by experts. Uh, in any case, we cannot continue as we do. Because what we do with our climate policy is just weakening us and strengthening China. You're an ardent free marketeer in many ways. I think you some of this values-based argument that you put has a something of a tension there. When you're talking to and you meet all the time leading business figures on both sides of the Atlantic, Western corporations and investors still want to do business with China. To what extent would you say, well, the US and other democracies should stop businesses or should pressure businesses to do 
like with China, or are you really just hoping that you will persuade them by the argument that you lay out? So the, the whole principle of my proposal is based on incentives, not on prohibitions. It's not that I want to forbid anything to somebody. It is that I want to incentivize people, convince people to do things in a different and smarter way. That's the underlying principle. Now, uh, very uh, concretely, if it is about China, the situation that we are facing at the moment is that in America, probably the only truly nonpartisan topic is China and how to deal with China. And the United States have basically decided to decouple. I think a unilateral decoupling of the United States from China is first of all not solving the problem and secondly weakening the US economy. So I think these unilateral approaches are wrong. We need something where democratic economies unite, define their interests and in a way collectively achieve a completely different negotiation power and with that bring China to the table on different terms. And again here it is not stopping doing business with China. It is establishing more reciprocity. It is establishing more symmetry. What China can do in Europe and in America, we would like to do in China. What China does should be based on the same rules with regard to climate and with regard to business terms. And that, I think, can only be achieved if we are collectively redefining our approach. You're critical in the book of the legacy of Donald Trump, the only president you didn't meet. And you say hardly anyone has weakened democracy from within as much as the 45th president of the United States. How worried are you about a possible return in next year's election in the US? And with Donald Trump, yeah. it's always hard to predict you know, where that goes. But positions on Russia are, are wobbly, to say the least, protectionist instincts, actually destroying the chances of the kind of vision of the world that you're calling for? So, first of all, nobody knows, and it seems to be really a kind of 50-50 race, but we should be realistic. The likelihood that Trump is going to be re-elected is not to be ignored. I think it is actually growing, and we should take it very seriously. That's point number one. Point number two is the things that I really worry about with regard to a new and next Donald Trump term is the idea of alternative facts. I think that is poison to democracy and totally dangerous with regard to the stability of open societies. And the second topic is the idea of America first isolationism. I think that if we see the real challenges of the world, and they're getting bigger every day, and the undemocratic forces are getting more self-confident every day, these challenges can only be solved together in a democratic unity. It is about the sovereignty of democracy and not about the sovereignty of single states. And in that context, this isolationism is super dangerous. What we see these days and very kind of concretely with, for example, if we look to the recent events, I mean, to the global road and belt summit that Putin and Xi held, um, this is a clear signal. Russia and China are united. And if the BRIC countries are building an alliance and we in Europe and in the United States remain kind of disentangled, then I think the outcome is pretty clear. So that's why it is a pivotal moment. We have to unite. We have to reestablish the transatlantic alliance. We have to reestablish a truly democratic uh, alliance of interests. And then I think we will be powerful enough to solve the issues. But um, it's a way to go. Let's talk about something else as we're meeting in London and one of the big conservative newspaper titles, news group titles, The Telegraph, is 
on the block. It's, it's facing an imminent auction. The existing owners are also bidding, valuing the group at one billion pounds. You have, I think, Axel Springer has declared a possible interest. Are you likely to be the next owner of the Daily Telegraph? So, first of all, we never comment on M&A speculations, but I can tell you that we have defined a digital-only strategy and we remain interested in growing our digital media portfolio. So, digital first? Digital first, digital only. If you work for Politico, which is a digital company, maybe some relief to, <laughs> to you. I, I only make that comment. I think the parish, the media parish can perhaps uh, analyse that in a bit more detail. Before we let you go, we ask everyone who comes on the show who they would like us to book for a future interview. Who would you like to hear? Winston Churchill. Not available, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> where's, where's the new Winston Churchill, the young Winston Churchill? I'm so desperately looking for that with regard to our political leadership. Right. There you go. That, that's our task. Producers, did you get that? Our job is to find the next Winston Churchill <laughs> and put him on the show. That's what Matthias definitely would like to hear. We hope you're going to continue listening to the show as well. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Coming up on Powerplay, our power panel will be here to explore what you've just heard. A message from Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. The company's vaccine technology is built on a protein-based platform and combines the power of a well-understood approach with an innovative nanoparticle technology. It is intended to help protect against some of the world's most pressing viral diseases, including COVID-19 and influenza. Novavax is collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations and industry, to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Because protecting one of us can help protect all of us. Learn more at www.novavax.com. We're back with our power panel to take stock of Matthias Derfner's arguments. And to do that, we have Politico's very own head of news in Europe, Christian Oliver, and a special expert guest on US-Asia relations from the Harvard Kennedy School, Rana Mitter. Welcome both to Power Play. Hello. Hello, Anne. Listening to the case that Matthias Derfner made there about the West being caught in a trade trap, does any of that resonate with you, Rana? Yes, I think that Matthias Derfner has identified part of the problem extremely well. And actually, the overall idea that liberal states, whether in terms of their domestic politics, you know, freedom of speech, civil rights and so forth, should be an important part of presenting yourself in the world, along with the idea of liberal trade. Those are, I think, very good qualities, and I'd have no argument with them whatsoever. Where I think the issue lies is how that gets put into operation. Right now, we're not we're living in a world where international trade or indeed international democratic rights are having their finest moment. And I think in terms of making sure that there are alternatives out there, a liberal alternative to the challenge from authoritarian states, the idea is an extremely good one. It's the implementation that we need the detail on. Christian, I saw that Gideon Rachman, the FT writer, Financial Times writer, said, hey, this sounds rather unpractical now, but looking to the future, it may not seem to be such a bad or implausible idea. And, and that struck me as an interesting way to look at it. What do you make of that? 
I would even argue that it, to many of the trade experts in Europe now, it doesn't actually sound that impractical. I mean, we can argue about whether tariffs are the right thing to use. But in terms of we need to create a level playing field, China is unfair. It's an unfair playing field in terms of labor rights, in terms of emissions. This is something that over the past decade, the EU and from time to time working with the US has tried to to sort out. They've had big probes into Huawei and ZTE, into uh, solar panels. We've had all sorts of uh, anti-subsidy and anti-dumping investigations. There, We're going to move very shortly into the world of weather. Uh, Europe needs to put in some protections against the Chinese electric vehicle business possibly wind turbines as well. These are the sort of conversations that are going on all the time in Europe. And when you get the US and the EU trade experts together, they often try and present this as a united front, saying that we do want to sort of build a trading system that is, you know, the fair free world taking on, they often don't mention China, but we know it's about China. So he is actually describing something that a lot of the world wants to do at the moment, but often comes unstuck with. China is very good at playing games of divide and rule with the Europeans when they try to take this approach. But it's certainly at the forefront of the minds of many of the people who uh, work on trade policy. Rana, this talk of democracies trading with each other Given the state of the world, given the tensions and the way they flow through business into politics and sometimes into conflict, can you see where Matthias Derfner is coming from on this one? Oh, I can absolutely see where he's coming from, Anne. I assume that most people who do live in liberal democracies, and you know, we certainly both do, would like the idea of such countries trading with each other. We, we share values. We share an awful lot that means that it's natural for us to engage with each other. I think part of the problem is that Matthias Döfner is trying to make a point of principle about something that actually might be quite pragmatic, by which I mean this. If he means that liberal democracy shouldn't trade with China specifically, then that's a very particular debate which we need to get into. But saying that we're not going to trade with any authoritarian states, any non-democracies, that throws a real spanner in the works of where world trade is going. For instance, much uh, production of electronic goods is moving to places like Vietnam. Now, Vietnam may have many virtues, but it's no one's definition of a liberal democracy. And so by trying to make that point of principle that democracies are different, we actually find ourselves throwing some of our trade and trade for some of our important geopolitical partners into a rather more tricky situation. Well, I pressed a little bit on that, just to follow up briefly, and I think his answer was not, as I had maybe thought initially, to try and sort of forbid trade with autocracies. It was to say, in a way, you get an incentive, you get an upside of tariff-free trade if you trade in this kind of free trading, free world club. So in a way, you wouldn't be stopped from trading with Vietnam. It would be make it perhaps more attractive to do trade deals with Britain and the Netherlands and emerging democracies. Isn't that really what he was saying? I think you've characterised what he said exactly right, Anne, but I'm not sure that the point actually entirely follows. Because 
where you're talking about tariffs, and I'm sure Matthias Dörfner, who's not here to defend himself, might not like the comparison. It sounds a bit like President Trump, who you might remember was very keen on imposing tariffs on all sorts of goods. Not, I think, taking account of the fact that, as most economists would tell you, tariffs aren't a tax on the country that's doing the exporting. They're ultimately a tax on consumers in the country which is doing the importing. And in this particular case, if you think about the cost of, say, an Apple iPhone, a company which you know has huge sales in China and lots of production there, they're already quite expensive pieces of kit. Other smartphones are available, we should say. But at the same time, it's clear that there's a demand for them. Whether or not the fact that the price would go up if there were tariffs is something I think that American and Western consumers have yet to actually uh, put their voices forward on. But I think they might have some doubts about it. So, Christian, how did you receive this message? Ron is saying, yes, good points of principle, but in terms of the pragmatics, difficult. But isn't it okay to try to link democracy and trade a bit more forcefully, given the fact that the period of just saying, well, let everybody do their thing has not led the world to a great place? I agree with Rana that we're going to have to really examine this as the remedies. Does this work? What does he really mean about tariffs? Is he not really describing something that the EU and the US have been trying to do for 10 years? But in his fundamental diagnosis, I think he is saying something important. There is an important link between democracy and trade. We see it in all sorts of areas such as Chinese film quotas and the way that that can impinge on the presentation of Tibet, uh, Hong Kong, the Uyghurs, the way that European politicians talk about key human rights issues because of their investment relations with China. I think the way that China exerts power through universities is often linked to Chinese influence through corporate arrangements. I think the relationship of Chinese power to trade is very important. And it's really a very democratic question he's asking. Now we have to go into exactly as Rana says, have we not tried a lot of this stuff uh, already? The idea of the EU and the US doing things together in terms of anti-dumping, anti-subsidies, the Trump tariffs, the approach to trying to form a big US-EU ecosystem that somehow keeps the Chinese out. This is something we've been working at for a very long time. And it's really, we're having difficulties in building it. And I think that's what we really need to discuss how hard this is for Western democracies to do this. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right. I think one of the major problems is that this isn't just about trade, it's also about supply chains. And one of the things that we have to think about when we're considering whether or not a particular good is made in China or not, or indeed made in any other dictatorship, is where it's going to be possible to move that production to. And that's something that I think an awful lot of places simply haven't really thought through. One of the issues also, Matthias Dörfner was also speaking, obviously, as head of Axel Springer, a major German media conglomerate. Well, his own backyard, of course, is one place which I think is making him so cross. But if you go to the people who are in the biggest German manufacturing companies, you know, again, off the top of my head, I'd say Siemens, BASF, uh, Volkswagen. These are companies that have huge sunk costs in China. And the message that a lot of them are giving is Points of principle, of course, are very important. The German Green Party in particular, Annalena Baerbock and others have been really at the forefront of making it clear that they think that values and rights should be at the front of international diplomacy. But in the last resort, 
as you will know, Anne, as a great German expert, the amount of Germany's economy, which seriously would come under assault from having to pull out of China's market, would really cause a major downturn in Germany itself. And its politics are already uh, showing the strains of uh, economic downturn. I'm not sure whether a China shock is something that democratic politicians would necessarily yet be able to sell to their publics. We should talk about Israel and the situation after the dreadful Hamas attack in Israel and, of course, the military operation now to attempt to clear out Hamas in Gaza and the controversy about that and the impact on Palestinians and on civilians generally. What did you make of, of that, Christine, and to what extent was Matthias Derfin a very strong supporter of Israel historically and in the present? But how much is this issue that he raises about strong, strong feelings coming across, affecting Europe and indeed Germany, France and the European compact at the high level. I understand that. It is a very difficult subject and it's opening up fault lines right across Europe at the moment. Naturally, Germany has a very particular position because of the Holocaust and the sensitivities there. I understand why he's very much saying these are shocking things for Germans to see on the on the streets. It is opening up all sorts of divides within the way European policy is working at the moment. You have certain European countries that are gravitating more towards we need to get some kind of ceasefire operating now, we need aid going into Gaza. Germany is still reticent about that. Does that mean you are criticizing Israel for its military operations in in Gaza? And I know the ministers were tugging very hard at that point. It's opened up all sorts of lines in France as well, similarly, where we can see the far right, uh, the national rally, Le Pen, with a history of anti-Semitism in that party, now trying to rebrand and to try and pull itself towards the political centre, being very anti-Islamist in its perspective, though, trying to court the French Jews. This is opening lines all over Europe at the moment, and it's very difficult to predict which way this is all going to go. But each of these things that we see on the streets of European cities is being played out in the council and the national level as well. Rana, the view from China or, or any other thoughts indeed on what's happening in the Middle East? Well, briefly, I was very surprised actually by the reaction from Beijing when the Israel-Gaza-Hamas war broke out, because normally in the Middle East, China has done a juggling act of keeping Israel and Saudi Arabia and Iran all within its diplomatic orbit. And it has fairly bland but decent relations with all of those. So for the foreign ministry essentially to utter a condemnation of Israel and a statement in uh, support of the Palestinians was very, very unusual in the context of the last 30 or 40 years. And again, we don't yet know, but this may show yet another turn in Beijing's mind towards trying to find any sense that the United States somehow is to blame for you know, all of the troubles in the world. We've had, of course, uh, China's implication that that's true in Ukraine. Now that's being implied about the Middle East too, and it may yet be part of a wider strategy to reorient themselves in that global sphere. So we'll have to see where that line from Beijing goes. That is fascinating and also rather perturbing. I think, Rana, we may have to, to have you back on the show in the future if we could to see, see how that develops. Thank you to both of my power panel today, to Christian and to Rana, and do be sure to join us next week for more interviews and analysis. If you haven't already, please take a moment to follow Powerplay wherever you're listening. We're available on all major podcast platforms. 
If you want to get in touch directly with our team from wherever you are in the world, you can email us, powerplay, at politico.eu. The producer in London is Peter Snowden and from Berlin, the executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. Join us next week for another edition of Powerplay. A message from Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. Novavax is also collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations, and industry to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Learn more at www.novavax.com.